I thank you all for the privilege of addressing you uh, year by year. I've, uh, I've had the privilege of speaking on uh, each of the elements of a worship service and then history and theology of worship and such subjects. And I'm going to switch gears a little bit this year by speaking on uh, the pitfalls to avoid in a historic reformed ministry. And I'd like to start from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, a passage that I believe is about church planting. And the Apostle, the Apostle Paul there says in verse 6 that I planted Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Planted what? He planted a church. Uh, verse 7, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Uh, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Verse 10 According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the church, the church at Corinth, the foundation which he laid as a wise master builder. And others now are building on that foundation that he laid. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, what's he referring to there? I, I think he's talking about the message of the gospel uh, back in verse 18 of chapter one, the word of the cross. That is foolishness to the world, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Chapter two, verse two, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Christ and the cross are the foundational, fundamental content that uh, that forms the foundation upon which the church was built. And then he says, now, if anyone builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it uh, because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet as through fire. So he, he proposes uh, two sets of materials upon which to build upon the foundation, which the apostle laid, which is the the. The gospel of Christ crucified. And so you're building up and you can use gold, silver and precious stones or wood, hay and straw. Now, what's the difference between those two building materials? Well, gold, silver, precious stones. Those are expensive. They are uh, enduring. Wood, hay, straw. They are cheap. Uh, they don't last. They're temporary, though they're easy to work with, easier to build out of wood, hay and straw. You can put up a structure pretty quickly. Uh, So he's contrasting that which is enduring versus that which is temporary, that which will last versus that which will soon be burned up. And on the judgment day, it's going to be clear uh, that out of which the church was built, whether or not it was the uh, the enduring, the eternal, uh, the biblical, uh, the, the Christ centered or whether it was built out of the temporary, the, the popular, 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 the expedient, the crowd pleasing. 
the judgment day is going to tell the, is going to, to reveal the difference between the work of those engaged in ministry and whether it was of the gold, silver, precious stone quality or the wood, hay, straw. This is all about church building and what we build our churches out of. The content is that of the cross. We preach in verse 23 of chapter one. We preach Christ crucified. It's a very simple message. The message of the cross, the message of Christ crucified. We build on that foundation. Uh, I am, have a habit of reading uh, Christian Century magazine. I like to know what the other side is saying. And I, I noted this this last issue that the retiring pastor from Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, one of the great churches of Presbyterianism, uh, stated in uh, his uh, introductory article to that issue that he no longer believes that the cross has any transcend, transcendent or universal meaning or that it was um, that Christ was crucified as a part of the plan and purpose of God. Uh, the word of the cross is foolishness uh, to the intellectuals of the Apostle Paul's day. It's foolishness to the intellectuals, to the elite of our day. That continues to be the case. We have a very simple message and to the world it's just foolishness. The whole idea that the, the death of a prophet 2,000 years ago atones for the sins of the whole world. It's just a, it just doesn't add up. It's just a, it's a myth. It's 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 foolish. It's 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 not um, up to the times uh, today. We know better. And then in terms of his delivery, it's a very unsophisticated delivery. He says in chapter two, verse one, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Uh, verse three, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message, verse four, and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, the, at, at the peak of a Greek education was rhetoric, uh, the, uh, the uh, capacity to present your knowledge in a form that could be understood, that could be grasped by others, the polished rhetorical presentation, the rhetorical skills by which you present a paper or a speech. And so there was great appreciation. The cultural context here is a culture that esteems very highly rhetorical skill. So you would think, perhaps, that therefore he's going to contextualize, right, by by mimicking the rhetorical devices that were common in that time in order to identify with, in order to win over his audience. And it seems to me that's the very thing that he is refusing to do. That would be wood, hay and straw. That would be to appeal to them on the basis of their flesh, fleshly interest, fleshly pride, rather than responding to the simplicity of the message presented in its simplicity. And he warns, in verse five or explains in verse five that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Is he not saying there that if he were to spruce up the message with Greek philosophical terminology, categories and wisdom, and then spruce it up with Greek rhetorical ability, you might respond to him rather than respond to the Holy Spirit. 
And that your confidence, your faith would be resting in man and not in God. To me, there's multiple lessons here for the ministry today and for our churches today. Build out of gold, uh, silver and precious stones. It'll endure. It's going to be costly. It's not going to be as easy to work with. Build with wood, hay and stubble. You'll get immediate results. You'll get uh, you'll produce something that is visible and you'll do it quickly. But it's not going to endure. And so in a culture that that loved and demanded the use of the rhetorical gimmicks of the Greek orators, the Apostle Paul instead preaches in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, not with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Neither the message nor the method was one that would be esteemed by the learned people of their day. Why? So that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This is, to me, a very encouraging passage for those who are engaged in historic reformed ministry, because we we advocate our whole tradition advocates a very plain style. We present the word, we read it, we we preach it, we pray it, we sing it. Um, We administer the sacraments with a, a minimal of ceremony. We are noted for a plain style in our architecture, in our interiors. We present the gospel without embellishment in a plain setting. And yet, the Apostle Paul says that he is a wise master builder. He applies wisdom in his building. And I want to raise the whole issue of whether or not we're as wise as we ought to be when we go about the business of building churches. And I want to try to identify the pitfalls that I think that we fall into, we who believe what the Apostle Paul is saying here. We who are convinced that we are to preach Christ crucified, a simple message with a simple methodology. We just read, preach, sing, pray the word and administer the visible word, the sacraments. That's all that we're about. That's all that we do. And then we leave the results up to God. We leave it up to the Holy Spirit. That's our conviction. Still, are we as wise as we ought to be about the way that we go about our work? I think that sometimes we may be our worst enemies. Bad advertisements for what we believe, doing our work poorly in our denominations. There's often a division between the pragmatists and the purists. And I would place this over with the purists. uh, But I think that sometimes the pragmatists have a point. If you read um, the purpose driven church. By Rick Warren, you'll find that there's loads of good advice. Now, you've got to filter all that through a reformed, a very tightly woven reformed grid. But he raises questions that are good questions to ask. And I've led our staff through a series of questions raised by that book that I think were helpful, helpful for us uh, to review. The pragmatists have a point. And sometimes we're not very wise about ministering in our own culture. So I raise, first of all, several, three general questions, and then I have five specific questions. Number one, do we have a problem of confusing faith with presumption? Jesus speaks of the sower, Mark 4, 26 through 29. Sows the seed and then he goes to bed. 
And it says that the the seed grows by itself, automatos, automatically. While he's sleeping and how it grows, Jesus says he himself does not know. Then he gets up and it's all grown. Do you remember the, the famous statement by Luther? I simply taught, preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. He says, all I did is I drank beer with Philip Melanchthon and then I went to bed and God did it all. That's what he said. And that's what I've said for years to just preach and pray. I had an astonishing visit from a, a leading denominational figures in the M&A about three years into my time at Independent, because we had grown very fast. And, uh, you know, we doubled Sunday morning and probably quadrupled Sunday night. And bunches of people were joining and lots of stuff was happening. And it was all very exciting. So they wanted they came to talk to me, took me out to lunch and they wanted to know, what are you doing? So obviously there was a trick. There was some kind of trick that I'd found. There was a secret. The magic bullet had been discovered. What are you doing? Uh, and you could just see the, 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 the blood drain from their faces when I said, well, all we're really doing is preaching and praying. That's all we're doing. Just preach and pray and God's blessing and building his church. And they continued to probe. What are you? You know, there had to be something more to it. There had to be a gimmick. There had to be something new that had been discovered. What is it about denominational bureaucrats that they want a program that they can publish and broadcast and then put you on the cover of the denominational publication. So it was a very quick lunch and on they went and they were very disappointed that they didn't get the goods from me. So that that's something I've been saying for a long, long time. However, there are some problems in presuming upon the blessing of God and not caring, taking care of some of the details. It's not a good thing if your choir looks like that of Mayberry. You know, it's not good if you if you're featuring Aunt Mabel's solos each week. Um, it's not good if you have an elder doing the announcements and he drones on and on in a monotone as he does. So it doesn't help if you have microphones that don't work. And I think sometimes our confidence in the ordinary means in the word read, preached, sung and pray the Holy Spirit working through those means that we don't give any attention to excellence. And so our ministries are stamped with mediocrity. Uh, no attention to neatness and tidiness. And so our places of worship or educational buildings are sloppy. They're in disarray. They're messy. They've got 1970s decor. If you want to know how bad that is, remember leisure suits. And they, they, they smell and there's stains all over the carpet and it looks like nobody cares. And any visitor that walks in, looks around and says. No one cares about um, this place. It is in such disarray. Um, little attention being given to room dynamics. We're not Gnostics. So, right, we believe that the human body is intentional and that we're not just spirits and trapped in bodies. But that part of the image of God is that we are psycho, a psychophysical unity and the body is intentional and the body is good. Uh, so we have to pay attention to meeting places and the dynamics of those rooms. 
I refuse to allow us to have Sunday night service in the sanctuary of the Independent Presbyterian Church for years. And the reason was you could see about 1,200 people in there if you squeeze them in. And we had about 150 on Sunday night. It was like holding a service in an airplane hangar. The dynamic was depressing and dark and empty. And so we moved into the chapel where it was tight and we were close and it altered the whole feel of the service. It's, it's not a very spiritual thing to say, but it really did make a difference in me, the preacher and in the people and their sense of things as they, they worshiped with us. Uh, pay attention to the acoustics if they're lousy. Um, get them fixed. It makes a difference if you're meeting in a basement that has no windows and there's no natural light filtering in. So are we guilty at times confusing great faith in the power of the Holy Spirit working through the ordinary means and presumption or even laziness? A failure to give due attention to the details of the ministry. The attention that ought to be given because we're dealing with human beings for whom space and circumstances and, and the building and the room all really do make a difference and, and affect the way they perceive the whole. Okay, number two, the confusion of failure with faithfulness. I'm borrowing this from Rush Dooney, who I've not... I've not read him for a, two decades, but there was a time when I was reading his books and appreciate and I still do appreciate lots that I learned from him. In one of his booklets, he speaks of one of the split P denominations that he didn't name for whom the sign of faithfulness was failure. I thought it was very clever. That stuck with me. I can't I can't figure out where I've read it, but it's been that long ago. But. Has he got a point? Sign of faithfulness is failure. After all, we are preaching the gospel and only a remnant is responding. Alec Mateer points out in a recent book uh, that the book of Acts could be called the growing church. And in its 28 chapters, there are 37 references to growth. There is in the book of Acts a presumption of growth in the church. So is there a problem with complacency? Are too many of our churches content to be a remnant church year, year after year, year after year, content to minister only to a remnant, content to only be a remnant? Now, admittedly, it's hard to be a Presbyterian. You got these rules about the Sabbath. All right. And they're they're a real downer, a real bummer for a lot of people. I mean, Presbyterians like us, we're telling people, you you know, you need to catechize your children. And that's just a lot of work, a lot of trouble. And the kids are whining and groaning and they don't want to do it. And then you feel guilty because the preacher says you should be catechizing your children. You got morning and evening worship. Nobody does that anymore. So they got to drag their tired carcasses back to the Sunday night service every week. And then you want us to do family worship on top of everything else. So you got to fit that in as well in between soccer practice and music lessons. And all that. It's, you know, 
we're very uptight and we don't do any fun stuff. We don't have bands and skits and light shows and, and pyrotechnics. None of that's going on in our services. And so it's hard to be a Presbyterian. And so we have a lot of excuses for why we're so small. We're the only ones doing all the stuff right. I believe that. I'm not, I'm not making fun of that. I believe that. All right. I believe we are. And, and listen, here's my excuse for saying that. If I didn't think what we were doing was right, I'd be doing something else. Right? Everybody is doing what they think is right. And as soon as they think something else is right, then they do the other thing. Okay? So I don't need to apologize for it, even though I just did. Okay? I think we're the only ones doing the whole thing that ought to be done. We're doing it right. And so we pay a price for it. Because we got all this stuff about which we're very uptight. And it puts all this burden on people. And they, they, it's a lot easier to go down the street and be a Baptist. Or, or better yet, a Methodist. Or a Pentecostal. Still, is the gospel the power of God or not? Are we preaching the gospel? Is it not the power of God unto salvation? Is it not true that, that uh, faith comes by hearing the word of Christ? Shouldn't the power be released? Shouldn't people be coming to faith? Is it not true that, uh, that, uh, that we're born again by the new and abiding word? Shouldn't people be being born again? Isn't it true that we grow by the pure milk of the word? Shouldn't people be growing as a result of our ministries? And growth means that they, they're excited about the things of God. It means they're burdened for lost souls. It means they want to get the gospel to other people. It means they're bringing people to church where they'll hear the gospel. Is, uh, is there a confusion of failure with faithfulness? Third. Is there a confusion of pace with prudence or with faithfulness? We're waiting for the right time. That's what we're telling ourselves. Waiting for the right time to do thus or so. And so there are interminable delays. This is another of the pitfalls as I see it. For example, psalm singing. All right, you've been at the church for 10 years. You're not singing any psalms. Why not? Why are you wait? What are you waiting for? This one's obvious. This one's easy. This is as easy as intention. <laughs> is there an easier question that baffles the PCA than intention, the Bible, theology, history, ecclesiology? It all lines up on one side. Psalm singing. A book of songs in the Bible meant to be sung. This was clear to me as a freshman in college. You sing psalms. We have resources. Sing them. The Trinity Psalter is cheap. It's thin. It fits in the pew. We don't know all those. Listen, there's a hundred of them in there that have tunes as easy as Amazing Grace. I'll grant you the other 50 you've got to work at. So what's your excuse for the first 100? Why aren't you singing them? What are you waiting for? And, and then, all right, we don't have Trinity Psalms. We can't afford them. We're a poor remnant church. <laughs> what about the Trinity hymnal? There's 60 plus psalm settings. What's so hard about putting in the bulletin Psalter slash hymnal number 
53, God be merciful to me. Psalm, parentheses, Psalm 51. So they begin to know they're singing a psalm. Makes a difference to me. I think it makes a difference to a lot of people. No, they're actually singing God's word. So you've been there 10 years. What are you waiting for? Why, why, is, it, why, is, that, why is that so difficult? Or what about Lectio Continua reading? Read the Bible. You got a Bible verse on that one. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Read the Bible. Not just a little bit you're going to preach on. Read from the other Testament. Read a chapter. Take your people through the Bible by reading it. What are you waiting for? These interminable delays. They border on cowardice. On the other hand, imprudent haste. Some of us make the same mistake as the radicals. We have no sensitivity to the culture of the church to which we have gone. Every church has a culture. It's okay to have a culture. What do I mean by culture? Well, they have ways of doing things and they have some standards about the way you act and the way you dress and what you do. Every church has got them at some level or other. There are ways that are accepted of how we do things around here the way that we've always done them. Or even if we're a church plant, we've been here for a year. But in the last 52 weeks, this is the way we've always done it. It happens that quickly. You're laughing because I'm right. It happens that quickly. You, you have these accepted ways of doing things. Then you get called there. You're there. You're now the new minister. They have a culture. Every, here's, here's what I say to our church staff. Every single thing in our church has a name on it. Somebody thought it was a good idea. Somebody designed it. Somebody implemented it. Somebody got it approved. And so everything that gets changed is an affront to someone out there in the church. You've got to tiptoe around that. You've got to take that into account. I'm not an, obviously not an advocate for no change, especially in light of the, the, just the previous paragraph, as, as it were. But still, there is a sensitivity to the culture of the church, which means that you're careful You gain the trust of the people. You lay the groundwork. You earn the right to make changes. And you do so out of an overall respect. If you don't respect the church, then don't go there. Have a basic foundation of respect. You come in with that respect. You honor what's there. um, And you're sensitive to the changes that need to be made. There's a lot of things that have not yet even changed after 27 and a half years at at independent president. It took 15 years to get rid of the Christmon tree. And I suffered under that Christmon tree. I mean, you know how old the tradition of Christmon trees is? Like 1958. This is not ancient history. This is another one. This is like when they thought about inventing Rudolph and Frosty. Christmas trees came in that whole 1950s post-war sentimentalism, uh, family time. But for 15 years, I didn't touch it. And then Ron Parrish, there he is, <laughs> came into the session and Raised the issue of the Christmas tree. The session immediately voted against having one that year. He brought it up. They voted with him and I paid the price. 
In January of 1519, Zwingli began to preach verse by verse, Lectio Continua, through the Gospel of Matthew. April 1525, nearly six and a half years later, the Mass was abolished and the services began to be conducted in the vernacular. He waited six and a half years. Basically, also did Farrell and Luther. They were very, very slow to make changes in the public face of the worship service. Respect the culture of the church. You get called the perimeter church. Don't go on a crusade for a pipe organ. It's just not the culture of the church. If you go to 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, don't try to bring in a rock and roll band. It's contrary to the culture. This is common sense. Respect the culture of the church. First Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Paul, Paul says, appeal to older men as fathers, older women as mothers. Can we draw principle out of that about what you do with aged things, the traditions of the church, the customs of the church, the ways that they, they do things? It was 10 years before we got rid of the Advent candles. We had an elder who donated the golden Advent candle holder. And they had a whole ceremony about how you came out of the pulpit and children lit the candles. This whole, maybe some of you are doing that right now. I don't know. But that just to me was, come on, what are we going to, let's just come up with some ceremonies that are outside of the Bible. and, And it was a way of involving children and the families and everybody loved it and took pictures and but still, I think that you rush changes, you hurt people, you cause division, you lose people. So don't confuse pace with prudence. Now to get to the specifics. Number one, another pitfall, confusion of the liturgical with the reverential. There's so much silliness, embarrassing silliness going on in the church right now that the pendulum swings from the reformed tradition of worship. From there, let me start that over again. From contemporary, silly, ridiculous, contemporary worship all the way over to a high liturgical Episcopal service bypassing, as it swings by, historic Reformed Presbyterian practice, the beautiful, happy mean in the middle where we all really ought to be. There's this backlash, not a huge one, because even then we're a tiny little group, but there's this backlash against the contemporary way over here to to the highly liturgical. So... We've got churches using liturgical responses, the Sursum Corda, the Gloria, the Sanctus. We've got lots of responsive readings going on, written unison prayers, prayer litanies. And really, none of these things are harmful in themselves. Some go beyond that, colorful robes, observing Advent, observing Lent. Those are not as benign, in my view. But all this is in the, in the, in the name of, of giving it a, services a more reverential tone. Bringing order to the services as opposed to the casual, flippant um, tone of, 
what's going on in so many contemporary churches. We had a wonderful uh, Episcopal minister, Father Ralston, in Savannah, uh, my early years in Savannah. I took him a, a, a bulletin from one of the PCA churches that was doing the highly liturgical order of service. I took it to him and handed it to him. I said, take a look at this. Tell me what you think. He burst out laughing. The Sursum Corda was all in the wrong place. He just thought it was hilarious where they had put that. I, I just think we make very poor Pentecostals and we make very poor Episcopalians. <laughs> Let's here. And the thing about liturgics is when you go overly liturgical, you squeeze out free prayer. And if you go with the calendar, you're going to squeeze out the Lectio Continua in favor of calendar themes. One of the great strengths of our tradition is the free prayer tradition. Passionate, urgent and particular care as led by the minister for the sake of the congregation. Some of the most moving services I've ever been in were experienced not at the time of the preaching of the message, but at the time of the preaching of the, of the praying of the prayer. That's a that's a powerful part of our tradition. All this liturgical addition that is coming into our services will squeeze that out. I think that we should have some fixed forms like the Apostles Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, the Gloria Patri, doxology. You know, mix them up in the morning and the evening services. You get you have a moderate amount of fixed forms for the service to kind of anchor the service. But I get concerned when we go too far in that direction. Why? Well, for one reason. OK, I've given you one reason. It squeezes out free prayer. Second reason is boring. Most of it's just plain boring. You go through these responsive readings and prayer litanies and, and there's no urgency in it. There's no passion in it. There's no power in it. So I hate to see the pendulum swing over in the direction of all fixed forms or too many fixed forms where the freedom that we have enjoyed in our heritage of worship begins to disappear. Reformed churches dropped the calendar in order to devote the attention to the Lectio Continua. To the readings, the consecutive readings and the consecutive preaching. If you go back to the calendar, the themes are going to take over. They're going to dominate the readings. Don't confuse the liturgical with the reverential. A reverential service is one that is characterized by solemnity within which the elements are handled with care. Reverential should not be confused with the degree to which the Episcopal is mimicked. Okay, second specific, confusion of length with depth. We don't want to be shallow and superficial. John Stott was right, sermonettes breed Christianettes. However, I think an 8 to 15 minute long pastoral prayer is excessive in our day and age. I think it's too much. I think it's a trial and a temptation to our people. I think a 45 to 60 minute sermon is too much. 
for most congregations and for most preachers. I know there's a number of you who don't agree with me about this. But I think you have to be really, really good to go for 45 minutes. I think you should aim at 30. Frankly, most of us are not good enough to preach that long. We'll get by. They'll tolerate us if we go for 30. And then if we go over, then it's 35. It might even creep up to 38. If it's 45, it's going to creep up to 55. It's going to encroach on an hour. And I think we're expecting a lot of our people to expect them to sit that long for sermons. Long pastoral prayers, long sermons. I think it's a trial to them. And I don't think that most of us in our gifts are up to it. A service that's an hour and a half to an hour and three quarters long, in my opinion, is a mistake. I think to sing your way all the way through Psalm 69 is a mistake. I know churches that do it. Make that singular. I know a church that did it and was vigorously defended. I think that's a mistake. Uh, The law of diminishing returns sets in. It's not in the Bible, but it's a common sense one. There is a point at which more is less. So don't confuse length with depth. These are wisdom issues. In my opinion, about a five minute pastoral prayer is the upper limit. I think you should aim at 30 minute sermons. I think you should have an hour to an hour and a quarter long services. I think if you are one of the great conference speakers in in our circle, you can preach longer than that. Most of us are not great conference speakers. We have ordinary gifts, ordinary congregations preaching to ordinary people. And so we need to have our targets down at at a more accessible uh, level for the average congregation. One of our leading ministers in the PCA has compared some of our stronger churches, nevertheless, he's looked at them with criticism, saying they are able to catch whales, but not guppies. And he was talking about the capacity to produce really great disciples in those churches. He said they're all whales. There's no guppies. There's no they're, they're smaller churches. They have produced these great, um, uh, great, uh, these great uh, Christian leaders have come out of these ministries. But but uh, there's no little people. There's no ordinary people. Whales, not guppies. I just think we need to be able to get whales and guppies. And I think it's difficult to do if we're setting our sights in terms of the length of what we're preaching and praying and singing if we're setting them that high. Third, confusion of frequency with fervency. It's coming more and more to be the case that serious churches are having weekly communion. In the Reformed Church, that has never been our practice, not on the continent, not amongst the Puritans, not amongst the Scots and not in the New World. Though it's had very prominent advocates, it's not been the practice. I think the verdict of our tradition is that we prefer to be careful rather than frequent. We prefer to observe the Lord's Supper with intensity rather than observe it weekly. And so our tradition is one of communion seasons that are central to the life of the people of God. 
The Lord's Supper having a central place that it plays. It is the epitome of the Christian religion, according to John Willison, the 18th century Scot. It's where commitments are made and commitments are renewed and where the word is made visible. So don't confuse importance with frequency. This is so typical, but it's to me, it's misguided, wrongheaded and unfair. One is not saying that the Lord's Supper is important if it's being rushed. And in most, not all, but most, and my evidence is anecdotal, admittedly, where weekly communion is being observed, it's rushed. This is a, this is a motivation behind intention. It moves it along. We can go through this quickly and we can do it every week. I'm just saying I don't think that it's right to confuse. I don't think we're thinking clearly if we are confusing. If we're confusing uh, fervency with frequency or importance with frequency. I don't think I'm not saying that churches are wrong to have weekly communion. I am saying if you're going to have it, don't rush it. And realize that you're probably going to need an hour and a half to do it if you're not going to minimize the sermon And you're going to be piling all that on top of whenever you have a Sunday school. And all those are factors that we like to ignore because we're purists. But I'm saying that if you have an hour of Sunday school and then an hour and a half service every week and then you have a Sunday night service. It's just getting to be a bit much. And it's and again, it's not even a part of our tradition where quarterly or monthly has been the norm. And where there is careful preparation and careful observance, but not every week, certainly not every service. Fourth, confusion of right form and content with spirit. We have said there are six basic prayer genres that a full diet of prayer will include a prayer of praise, a prayer of confession of sin, prayer of thanksgiving, prayers of petition, prayer of illumination and a benedictory prayer. So if we prayer, if we pray those six prayers, either um, individually or combined, several of them combined into one, like in a pastoral prayer, should we then be content that we have done what we need to do? No, not if they're insipid, not if we're meandering in our prayers all over the place, reciting cliche after cliche, or if there's no distinction between the genres and they're all the same prayer six different times. Which was the case at one church I served as an intern and an assistant minister. Each of us had a prayer. Each of us prayed, a, a, you know, the whole gamut every time we got up there and prayed. Finally, Jim Baird said, do you know that your prayer is a prayer of praise? And that's different than his prayer, which is the prayer of Thanksgiving. You know, and the light went on. Don't confuse the having the right content with having the right spirit. If we are going to pray, we should be praying with passion and with urgency. There should be that note of intensity about our praises, about our confessions of sin, about our our petitions and intercessions, about our thanksgivings, about the, the whole gamut of prayer. Listen to Thomas Watson in his book on the Ten Commandments. He says, prayer without fervency is like a sacrifice without fire. Christ prayed with strong cries, Hebrews 5, 7. 
Prayer without fervency is no prayer. It is speaking, not praying. Further, he says, prayer that is likely to prevail with God must be argumentative. God loves to have us plead with him and use arguments in prayer. God loves to be overcome with the strength of argument. With regard to expository preaching, should we be content with great content in our preaching? No, because content without urgency and fervency and application and exhortation is is a mere lecture. Remember, Baxter in his autobiography famously said, I preached as if to never preach again as a dying man to dying men. There was an urgency about it. Thomas Manton, doctrine is but uh, drawing the bow, application is hitting the mark. And and we have whole schools of thought in, in our circles today that don't think you should even do application. That is not a part of our tradition. That's not our understanding of what is required of the Christian minister. There should be application and it should be pressed and urgent and, 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 and spoken with, with, uh, with fervency and passion. These are eternal matters, life and death, heaven and hell, light and darkness. So we can't be content with just getting the form right, or even getting the content right. I've got my six prayers. I've got my expository preaching. Even the reading, the reading should be with nuance and feeling. Dare I admit, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh the other day, and he was reading uh, an article that had appeared in the newspaper. And he said, most people can't read articles on the radio because they don't know how. But I, you know how, what a braggadocio is. I know how to read. And he proceeded to read. And he does know how to read. And he read it, read it very effectively. Uh, there, it's worth giving some attention to how we read the scripture. Because they should be read with nuance, with feeling. It should, it should reflect the mood of the passage. It will enhance the understanding of the people. We cannot be content with just doing the right things, the right forms, even the right content. The right spirit needs to attend the form and the content. Or else, or else I think the form and the content are unconvincing. I've quoted before Al Mohler say, saying a man shouting fire from a burning building has... A natural eloquence. That was Al Martin, not uh, Muller. Yeah, you, if the building's burning down, you yell fire. There's a, there is a natural eloquence. The emergency, the, 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 the danger. You, you're, that, that's all in the, in the voice and in the tone and in the, in the manner that it's being expressed. Well, that's what we're dealing with. And then fifth, the fifth of the specific pitfalls, confusion of ordinary means with the only means. If number five is not on your outline. Uh, shorter catechism, number 88. The ordinary means are the words, sacraments, and prayer. So we give them rightly focus, attention, energy, emphasis. We devote our resources uh, to the ordinary means in our weekly services. I remember thinking at our 6.30 a.m. Tuesday morning prayer meeting, 
that we were praying about a whole host of stuff. We had a whole prayer list full of stuff praying, most of it medical. Like the shift change at the hospital almost, as uh, one author put it. We were going over and over this stuff. I started realizing after several years of these meetings, we don't ever pray about the Sunday services. That's, that's, that's odd. Why are we not praying about what happens Sunday morning and Sunday night? That's when most of the people are there. That's when we're ministering to them. Shouldn't we be praying about what happens in those services? Praying for the preacher, praying for the word as it's read and preached and sung and prayed and the administration of the sacraments. We should. And so I at least pray for the Sunday services every time that we have a Tuesday morning prayer meeting. It should be getting emphasis. It should be getting focus. The ordinary means are operative. The words being read, preached, sung, and prayed. So we ought to be praying about what happens as all of that is taking place. That's our focus. That's our, that gets our attention. That's given the major resources and time and energy of the church. But does that mean we can ignore everything else? The answer is no. Like what? Number one, relationships. There's a lot of us, I use the first person plural, um, who like to hide in our studies. And we excuse it, too. We are committed to the ministry of the word. We should be careful students of the word. And there's a dearth of ministers who are careful students, far too many of them throwing together their sermons if not the night before, maybe even during the special music. So there's way too much of that going on. So we're glad that our tradition emphasizes a learned ministry that studies hard and is faithful in presenting the word. That doesn't mean that we can hide in our studies and never get out of our studies. I think the kitchen table needs to be seen as a valuable tool of ministry. I think the coffee house, likewise, when one can meet with uh, members and visitors at uh, the coffee house or for lunch, I think it's important to linger long after services. Get there early and linger long afterwards. Be the last one to leave. Don't pronounce the benediction and rush out the door. They're there. They're there right now. Let them have a con- some contact with you. Maybe they have a question. Maybe they have a problem. Maybe they need to set something up. Hang around so that they, there's some opportunity to relate to the people. We're not the most relational group in the whole world, probably. I'm not. I know. I like hiding in my study way, way too much. I confess it. I acknowledge it. But I don't think it's good to be exclusively in the study and then rationalize it in the name of devotion to God's word. Don't confuse the ordinary means with the only means. The second uh, item, facilities. Pay attention to the facilities. You might be interested to know, I don don my glasses for this, In 1841, the independent Presbyterian church had no restrooms, no classrooms, no nurseries, and no offices. It had a meeting house. Period. That's all. Now, a couple of decades later, 
when they started thinking that through in light of changes going on in American civilization, one could have said, and undoubtedly there were those who did, why do we need restrooms? We've never had restrooms. <laughs> and no previous generation has ever had restrooms. Remember, indoor plumbing is a relative, especially here in the South, a relative novelty. I mean, we're talking post-World War II for about half of the households in the southern United States. So the fact that we had none of those in 1841, what does that mean for 30 years after that? 1871, they added restrooms and classrooms. Why? Because they needed to. All right. 1928, they finally added offices. Not until 1928. And additional classrooms. I can't pin this one down. But Joe Van Puffin's mother, Joe's back there next near Ron, the other bad guy, <laughs> told me that when Joe was a baby, the babies were all in the back of the church in carriages. There were no nurseries in the 1940s and to the early 1950s. So somewhere in there, probably 1950 or so, post-war, they added nurseries. What was happening there was one generation's Luxuries became the next generation's necessities. And you could be stubborn about it. And you could say, well, we've never done that before. We've never needed that before. That's a sign of weakness or that's a waste of money. We could put that money into the mission field. We could use that money in other ways that would be more beneficial than putting it into the facilities. Just, so let me ask you, where do you think the independent Presbyterian church would be today if it had no restrooms, no nurseries, no classrooms, and no offices, and did so in the name of tradition. I, it'd be empty. There came a point at which you had to have a bathroom. There came a point at which you had to have additional staff at the church. You had to have a bulletin. It just became customary. Now, you could fight the customary, but you will lose that fight. Because it became expected that you would have it. So you had to have secretaries producing these things. I've been in Scottish churches where the numbers are on the wall. There's no bulletin. There's just numbers. And that's where you flip to to sing the psalm or the hymn. You could do it that way. That doesn't fly in America. You better have a bulletin. And you say, well, all we're doing is depending upon, we're depending upon the word of God. We're depending upon the preaching of the word. And we don't need to have bulletins. And we don't need to have nurseries. And we don't need to have restrooms. And you and your wife can have a lovely service in your living room. <laughs> Where probably your office is and there will be restrooms. <laughs> I think you, have, you do have to, you know, let's take a, a page from the playbook of the multiculturalists. You, you have to address your culture. Your culture is moving along. You better keep pace with it. Now, I'm, I, I know that you and I are adamantly opposed to applying that principle to what goes on in the service. We want to stay simple in content, simple in delivery. And we should. Ordinary means. But that doesn't mean that therefore... 
We continue to, to meet in first century buildings without any air conditioning or without any heating, or without any restrooms, or without any nurseries, without any classrooms, without any offices. Right now, we have totally inadequate fellowship space. We're going to have to spend a couple of million dollars to create it and have to be very creative about how we go about doing it because we're landlocked. But we can't get more than about 250 people in our fellowship space, and we have a congregation of twice that size. So it's a real problem for us, and it affects what we're able to do in Savannah. So we're going to address it. We're going to spend a bunch of money to do it. Why are we going to do it? In my way of thinking, because we better do it, because we've got to keep pace with where the culture is going and what the expectations of people are and what it takes to minister to people together. And you want to get the congregation together for the sake of their interaction and their friendships and their uh, knowledge of each other and devotion to each other and their capacity to bear each other's burdens. Take care of facilities. Another I, 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 matter of confusion, public forums. Where, 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 this is number three, public forums. Where is communication occurring? I'll tell you how it took place. Until relatively recently, there's a long rope in our steeple and you pull that and a bell rings and that meant the service was about to begin. That's how you got the word out. You rang a bell. It's a very ancient but effective technology. And then you put a clock up on the steeple where people can see it's about time. So there's another advance on the bell technology. Now we have a clock and a bell And that's how you communicate and get the word out that you have a ministry. Well, things evolve, don't they? Telegraphs and radios and televisions and computers and and so forth and so on. It's my conviction. You better keep pace. You better you better get the word out there. Where where where's the marketplace? Where are the discussions taking place? Where 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 is it that one makes uh, makes known one's ministry where one Let's the community know about the program that's going on, about the uh, the ministry that's going on, uh, about what you're doing. I think that uh, we need to be wise about these things. I don't think we need to mimic everything that the world is doing. But I do think we need to create awareness of the program that we have and the resources that we are able to make uh, make available. Luddites need to be where. That your Ludditism may be foolish and self-destructive in the long run. And so pay attention to where technology is going and how it can be used. It's open to a lot of abuse, misuse and danger. But if that's where the conversations are taking place, that's where the communication is taking place, is that where people become aware of what's going on in the community we better get into the public forum wherever it's taking place. Fourth, staffing. I think the business models have something to teach us when a business hires at the right time. The effect is it multiplies the amount of business that's being done and it pays for itself. That's how you add church staff as well. So that when you add that person, that means that you're able to move into areas and take care of things that were being neglected, that were a cause of concern, uh, that were disillusioning for people. 
You're able to hire more staff, a youth worker, another minister, an additional secretary. And the effect is, is that multiplies the ministry and therefore multiplies the happiness of the people. uh, And more effective ministry is going on and it pays for itself. So pay attention to to staffing. And then fifthly, program. Just a word about that. Program in seminary, I wrote a 35-page paper against Sunday school, about why you should not have Sunday school. Youthful enthusiasm. Um, Is that going to fly today, to not have a Sunday school? Mm, Maybe. Maybe it will for some churches. By and large, the first question every young family asks is, tell me about your Sunday school. Or if they're a little bit older, tell me about your youth group. I think you better pay attention to that and do something about it. People interpret whatever the reality is. They interpret the commitment to a Sunday school or a youth group as your interest in their children and the spiritual development of those children. Now, we always say along with that, look, the most important thing is to have your children in church Sunday morning and Sunday night and, and for you to be having family worship at home. And after that, we can, we can ice that cake. But you better bake it by bringing them to the family pew and conducting the family altar at home. So we would never have the youth group meet during the Sunday evening service. And we want our youth to identify themselves primarily as members of the church. They're not members of the youth group. They're fundamentally members of the church. Still, pay attention to the program of the church. Uh, What uh, the community is expecting and crying out for, I'd be very slow not to provide it. There are certain fundamental things that uh, perhaps are violations of principle. You know, if you don't think you ought to have a, a daycare center, we don't do that. And it's a matter of principle. Okay. That's where you draw lines based on basic convictions. But I think in these other things that are more in the, in the area of adiaphora, things indifferent, uh, matters of judgment, matters of wisdom. Uh, be careful about the program and, and what's being offered to the community. We are to walk, says the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 5.15, not as unwise, but as wise. It's a command to be wise. So be careful how you build.